I'm your host, Joshua Potts, always with the brother from the same mother, Aaron Potts, super hot Potts. And one of your favorite two black runners coming at you every single two black Tuesday. Let's go. We got a good one, baby. Welcome back to the Two Black Runners podcast on the Runner Report, where we give you running news produced for and by the culture. And for one minute, everybody, can we just like take a second and really just let this sink in? We're 42 episodes in. We have 10 episodes left till we hit 52 straight one year of the Two Black Runners podcast. Like, Aaron, we're on our way to a big milestone and big chapter. And low-key, bro, we just scratched the surface. Bro. Surface. Like, the people, they don't know. They don't know what's they coming. They don't. We're, we're 10. Hey, we're 10 to go, and we're turning it up right now. Like, you know, people Tell think them. you're going to slow down. Like, if it's a track race, we kicking it in. We on the, we on the last mile. We on the last 200, whatever you want to call it. We really turning it up. We have some big announcements coming, and we got a huge guest, like our our biggest guest yet, to be honest. Like, and we got more Bro. lined up after this too. So, I'm super excited for where we're headed with everything. And without further ado, Joshua, let the people know who we got who we got on today. I don't think some of the people that are listening right now understand like who our guest is, bro. Like, like, do you think, you know what I'm saying, Aaron? Bruh, yeah, like they understand who this man is, but they don't really they understand, don't understand. Like he's he's done it all. He really has world junior champion, NCAA champion, four-time Olympian, 1997 world champion. He's the only Emmy nominated sportcaster in track and field ever, ever, ever. We got Otto Bolden on the Two Black Runners podcast. Doesn't that just sound good to say? Otto, how, does, how's, how are you doing, bro? How are you doing? Well, after that intro, I'm, I'm doing a lot better. That's uh, a <laughs> good job of doing your homework and a uh, good job of introing what I have, uh, I have found to be a very compelling uh, podcast in the past. I saw the, the Lila Muhammad episode and you guys did a phenomenal job with that. That, hey, that means a lot coming from you. you. This guy, true professional, like we said, only Emmy-nominated sports track and field um, commentator ever. So to hear that from you is crazy. And I'm just, like, thinking right now, like, bro, we, we started this two black runners, Joshua, and the big thing we always talk about is how in our sport we don't see ourselves out there, like, commentating all the time or within the entertainment space. So to have auto on here with us today it's just like it's coming full circle and with with this being like 10 episodes to go and Mm -hmm. we got into this point where we got auto bolden nbc sports auto bolden on with us (laughs) bro it's it's crazy it's crazy but before we dive deeper into the podcast auto just how is uh we know 2020 2020 was crazy like we all know that but going into 2021, what has just been your mood like going in so far? What we're 21 days in now from recording this podcast. How's everything just been going in life so far? It'd be going a lot better if I would stop seeing fake news about the Olympics. Um, because I have, I mean, I have my doubts every now and then about if the Olympics are going to happen. And I was doing um, an Instagram live with Christian Taylor last evening. So I was using my phone. I knew something was going on because my phone was blowing up kind of in the background. I could tell I get off of that. And, you know, basically it was, you know, a bleacher report story saying, you know, Japan is kind of quietly figuring out how to tell the world the Olympics aren't going to happen. 
And I said to myself, oh, my gosh. And then by that time, Brianna Williams had already messaged me like, coach, is this true? And I'm like, Brianna, just, you know, we don't, we don't know for sure. And then pretty much in the last 24 hours, the IOC has said, look, we don't care what you heard. We've spent $20 billion to put on this show, and the show will go on. So I feel a lot better today at 7.48 p.m. Eastern than I did last evening at 7.48 p.m. Eastern because, I mean, I mean, we, we've all been through the, the, the devastation of dealing with 2020, the death, the Trump the, mm-hmm. the, the, the 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 protest for for civil rights it was just it was it was most people's worst year ever for some obviously worse than others i think for 2021 we were looking forward to you know turning the turning the page and turning the corner and the light at the end of the tunnel and the events of january 6th happened and yeah. all of us are kind of like oh is this going to be 2020 continued or is 2021 gonna be completely different? So I think like everybody else, I am hopeful, I am optimistic, but um, yeah, it's, it's it's gonna need to pick, 2021's gotta like, it's gotta pick up the pace here. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And yeah, I was on your Instagram live for a second. I saw people being like, Otto, did you see like the Olympics are canceled? And, and like, when I first when I first saw that report by Bleacher Report, like I called Joshua immediately and I was like, I can't even I don't even know if this is real. Like, I'm not sure if this is real. This seems like so sudden. But a big thing me and Joshua have been just talking about is like how important is the Olympics to for society right now? You know, just coming through everything we just went through. Like, what do you think the importance and the significance of having the Olympics is going to be this year? Well, I think for all of the reasons that I, I, I just mentioned uh, about why 2020 was so awful, uh, I saw it somewhere. I believe it was from the IOC president, uh, Tomas Bach, where he said, look, we want to be the thing that kind of makes the, the, the planet turn the corner. Like after 9-11, um, well, you guys, well, Joshua, you were what, one? When 9-11 happened? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For those of us who were adults when 9-11 happened. <laughs> um, 9-11 devastated anybody that, that that loved America, that lived in America, and so on. But sports kind of brought it back. It was, you know, New York teams running on the, on the field with Fire Department of New York and NYPD and the American flag. It kind of helped the country to heal. And I know that the IOC wants the Olympics and the opening ceremony, whatever that's going to look like, or the first day of track and field or gymnastics or swimming or whatever Olympic sport uh, you love the most. They want that to be the thing that sort of signals to the planet, you know, in the summer of 2021, hey, that's, you know, that's when I felt like we were past, you know, the last, you know, 16 months or 18 months of you know, what, what has been, you know, a really tough time for a lot of people. So I, so even when my feeling that the Olympics is, is going to happen is down to like 10 or 15% as it has, you know, um, for, for several times, maybe um, at the end of last year, I still feel like because they have spent so much money, yes, but more so because they want to be the thing that people can say, the planet is back. Humanity is back. Athletes, fans, people who love sport, the Olympics is the biggest gathering of 
sports anywhere, literally. And here is a chance for everybody who loves humans and planet Earth and sport to get together and celebrate. Yeah, and I just feel like when Aaron was calling me and telling me, like, bro, the Olympics may not happen, I just feel like every single time, like, that conversation gets brought up, like how you were saying, like, the responsibility that they're taking on and, like, the Olympics is always this thing that brings the whole entire the, the world together. It's all like there's no way that we have the AFC championships going on and we have NBA teams playing all across the country and we still have Premier League playing across the world that the Olympics can't just happen. I I, I don't know, like, I don't think, I don't know if there's going to be vaccinations. Like we don't have to get into all of that talk, but I just feel like with every, with all sports moving forward, there's going to be some type of way that a bubble is going to be created where people are going to be safe enough and take this serious enough because everybody wants to complete at the Olympics and everybody, I feel like wants the Olympics to happen this year and it's definitely something that the world needs to heal, heal from, to heal with this year, I feel like for sure. Well, remember that the, the NBA bubble wasn't perfect. And that's just true, true, true. people from, you know, who live in one country and one league. I don't know how you would bubble the Olympic Games. And if you've ever been to the Olympics, you understand that it is every single country represented. Not all but some, everyone. So I, you know, that sounds good. And I, I hear what you're saying about the AFC championship and, and the premier, those all pale in comparison in terms of size and, and scope. Um, I, th I, I saw today, there's a story, I believe on Reuters saying that um, they're going to try to get vaccinated, uh, to get everybody vaccinated. That creates a little bit of an ethical dilemma, I think, for myself and others, because I believe that the first people to get vaccinated should be people who are at highest risk. Until every frontline worker and everybody on the planet who, who, who has the means over, I don't know, 65, 75 has it, I have a hard time with taking those vaccines and sticking it into a 21-year-old. A I just do. I, I, I love sport. Um, my living is sport. My life is sport. But I don't know if I would, I don't know if I could, if I could sign up for that. And it's hard. It's hard. Cause like you were saying, like, this is, this can go down as one of the, the biggest or most important Olympics by what you're saying. Cause it's a time and they for, know that. and it's, it's a time for the entire world to kind of be like, yo, this was that moment where the world felt normal again, you know, and it could be just like, this monumental thing, if we can really make it happen. But when you think about the ethics side of, you know, giving these vaccines over these people, and it's like 11,000 athletes or somewhere around that number. And we're not even talking about the staff that's going to have to be there too. And we don't want to decimate this country. Like we don't want to bring all these people to this country and leave and, and give them a pandemic either. So there's a lot to go they're into. Not, they're not exactly controlling. Remember, Japan's in a lockdown right now because without all these, um, you know, multitudes of people coming for the Olympics, they already are not coping well with Corona, uh, with, with the coronavirus. So to say you're going to take their already taxed system and then add these, you know, hundreds of thousands of Olympic spectators and 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 fans and support staff and athletes. That's, that's asking a lot. And it's why the one thing we know is that the people of Japan are not too thrilled about, about hosting anymore. 
Whether or not it happens, we'll see. But the people of Japan, they're like, no, we don't want to cancel it. <laughs> hey, I could, yeah, I could see that. That that could be kind of, it could be scary. That would be scary to know all these people are coming to your town. Yeah. Yeah. Whole, whole lot of people, whole lot of people. But before we get dive more into that conversation and other things on the podcast and get to the meat and potatoes, uh, we also want to learn more about you, Otto, and, and like how you found your love for the sport and all everything in between there. And we like to start with this question, as we feel like I feel like the the people that most influenced you in your life, they are the people that have shaped you and be made you the person that you are today so who has just been or who or what has been that biggest influence in your life so far who has shaped you the person that you are today you would say um i think certainly growing up in 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 trinidad where the standard of education is extremely high where you got a lot more props for being the brightest and the smartest than you did the strongest or the fastest um, and, and the guys who could be both, I always say those were the guys that were celebrated in my day. You know, we call them all rounders, the guy who, the guys who could, you know, get, get great, get great results in their exams, but they also were good at sports. Those are the guys that I, I, when I was in high school, um, you go to high school from the time you're like 11 in Trinidad, but those were the guys that had a big influence on me. Uh, I had phenomenal teachers, um, Obviously, my parents are big, big um, influences on my life. I don't take for granted that I grew up in a house where, shoot, I had a computer when I was like eight or nine. Mm -hmm. mm. So there, was, there were things that I took for granted at the time. And I realize now, yeah, to be a child growing up in 1980 and having a computer and having certain things, it's like, yeah, it didn't seem like a big deal because that's all you know, right? When you're a kid, it's just your little bubble, your little world, and you don't know any different. Yeah. I realized that a lot of my technical savvy and my ability to, you know, trust science and 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 be very comfortable. I have a pilot's license, but be be very comfortable with sophisticated, complicated things. Um, came from the fact that I grew up, in, you know, in a house where you were. I was certainly encouraged to. Uh, to be, you know, to be all I could be academically, but but to but to always challenge myself in in something that that maybe I wasn't necessarily comfortable with uh, in the beginning. That makes sense too. Like, I mean, you're definitely an all rounder. I mean, you've been you're an Olympian, you're a world champion, sports commentating, and we didn't even mention this. Like, you're also involved in government in Trinidad Tobago. I believe you you were like. <laughs> in a Congress or for them or like Senator, what, what were you doing? Yeah, well, we, didn't actually, we didn't actually get in the government in, in the way that um, I'm trying to think of the, the U S equivalent, you know, how the Republicans don't control the Senate anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we were, I was, I was like, the, I wasn't, I mean, we obviously don't have Republicans in Trinidad, but yeah, yeah. Um, I was, I was in the party that was not in power at the time, but yes, I was a Senator briefly um, in Trinidad. I was, you know, I was, I had retired and was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. I knew that, I mean, I, I have a passion to to serve and to give. I think coaching filled the void mm. um, because I, I feel like it's something that, you know, keeps me up at night, gets me up in the morning. But yeah, for about, what, 14 months, I was I was a senator in uh, in Trinidad. And um, I, I, I got tired of it very quickly because politics is an ugly, ugly business. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I didn't last long in it. And I, you know, I got it. That's when I got my first job in commentating and, and, and the rest, as they say, is history. But um, 
yeah, that's 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 something I always strived for. It was that you you were going to be good at more than one thing. You weren't going to fit in anybody's box. Anybody that had a stereotype of what they thought an athlete was, or somebody from Trinidad was, or a black man was, would be um, would be wrong because I would I I would not be any one thing, and it would not be typical. With everyone, you know, encouraging you to just be all around and not just being like, like here, I would say you definitely see a lot of young black males, like just into sports, you know, you're the way is you're going to, you're going to go to the NBA, you're going to go to NFL, but for you growing up in um, that time in a place where it was really pushed for you to get this education, how did you fall into track? Who were those people that kind of influenced you to get onto the, get onto the track? I was never headed to the track. Um, and I think anybody, I left Trinidad at 14 and moved to New York. Um, that's one of the things I'm going to discuss with Delilah because we were actually in uh, in Queens at the same time. Yeah. Well, at the same oh, time, oh. she's yeah, she's, yeah. she's significantly younger than me, but I'm saying we both have that in common, New York high schools, New York City mm -hmm. public high schools. Um, I moved to, um, I left Trinidad at 14 and I don't think I had any inkling about running track. I had run a little bit in high school and I was all right. I mean, I was, you know, 90th percentile, but not a hundredth. And you know, if you're, if you're 90th percentile in track and field, that means you're getting like seventh and eighth. Um, in fact, I have a very vivid memory and it's probably going to get a whole chapter in my book. It's, you know, someday of qualifying for a final at like my high school sports day. And I kind of looked at the field and figured mm, I'm going to get last in that race. I had made the final great, but you know, my athletic gifts came late. I was probably those days I was probably like, I don't know, five, four, 120 pounds of that. So I remember thinking to myself, oh, I'm not going to show up for that race. So I had made it. I was the last qualifier in. And I remember them over the, uh, over the loudspeaker. Otto Bolden, please report to the start of the 80 meter dash. Otto Bolden, please report to the study. And I, I was like, I ain't got there. And, I, and people were like, hey, call your name. I'm like, I don't hear nothing. So I so I, I gave you that, that example of I was pretty good before I left Trinidad. When I moved to New York and then I got discovered uh, at Jamaica High School in Queens, by then, now I'm 16. I've grown three or four inches. Now I'm five, nine, maybe 150, 160 pounds. And now I feel like this is something I can do. Not only that, I've, I've started to beat some of the guys who actually moved as well from Trinidad who were pretty dominant back then. So mm -hmm. I had more of an interest in it, but my focus was soccer. Because mm -hmm. that's the thing. If you grew up in the Caribbean, it's all about soccer. Soccer and cricket. Everything else takes a backseat. And I turned on ABC and I saw the 1991 World Championships. That Those were the World Championships of Carl Lewis breaking the world record in the 100, 986. Uh, Michael Johnson running a crazy 20.03 into like a minus three point something headwind. That's like, it's a time that nobody, a performance that very few people talk about, but I've never forgotten. And it's also probably most notably uh, Carl Lewis versus Mike Powell in the long jump that's the world record that still stands to this day and i remember turning off the i remember turning off the 
turning off the television just going that's it that's that's what i want to do that that the bug bit me that day and from there i think my focus became that was that so that would have been 91 summer of 91 that's when i mean i was kind of back and forth soccer tribe soccer track that was it i never played organized soccer after 1991 because of that move. <laughs> wow that's that's like incredible and I, I think back to like my own personal story we were talking about a little bit before like a little bit before off wax like thinking back i don't thinking back to when i started loving track i don't think it was never it wasn't specifically a moment on tv but since i'm the younger of the youngest of three older brothers like being at a, a club track meet like one years old i don't really remember but just like i have like very like uh foggy memories of just being at the track as very young probably just like playing around like my beyblades with people with the other kids at the, on the team but then also seeing my brother starts riding the 800 and then my other brother doing shot put and aaron riding the 3000 and the 15 but then also like the 2008 olympics i've, I've just we just had like this recent discussion and and like my most memorable track moment has definitely have to be Usain Bolt's 2008 because we we're just watching downstairs. And I remember where every single person, like I remember where my dad was sit sitting. I remember where Aaron was sitting, my brother David and my brother Caleb, because it was just that that moment and that moment of sport was unlike no other. And then with the, seeing all the things that Usain Bolt has done since then, but not even being like somebody that was, I was never like a sprinter, like 100, 200. But being someone just seeing that's such an amazing feat in track and field was all like, dang, bro, like Usain Bolt's a star. And to, to see all that was definitely something that was like, I got to I got to do this, too. Like, I got to at least I got to take a shot at it for sure. So you just said your your aha moment didn't come through television. And you said, yeah, but it was watching Usain Bolt in the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. You weren't in Beijing, so it was a TV moment. <laughs> It wasn't like, I already knew though. I already knew though. Like I remember back in kindergarten, like I was running, like during recess, I would do laps around the school, like the, what's it called? Like the field, like running. And I remember oh, like a kid would come up to me and be all like, bro, like, why are you running? I was like, I don't know. And I don't know. I just always, running was always a part of our family, like for sure. And definitely since me being the youngest and they were already doing club track, it was always a part of me, I feel like. And then seeing that just confirmed it, I guess. In, in a way, but like, just all like, I want to, I want to dive deep into it and become a, a running nerd. And now I host a podcast where I interviewed runners, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> hey, that was a definitely an epic moment. I'm trying to think back to that, that day too, seeing this man with his hands up, beating everyone by like five meters. I was, yeah, I was, I was hyped for that. Um, but also Otto, for you, when was that moment where, where you were like, man, like, I'm I'm gonna be like super good at this. Like, was there was there a race or a performance where you realize like I can take this to take this to college and potentially the pros? Um, it all happened kind of slowly for me. Although I guess to everybody else it was quick. So I get discovered in 1991. Excuse me, in 1990. Uh, actually, fall of '89. Uh, at, at Jamaica High School. I run the 1990 season in uh, in New York City where I I ran like 48-4, 2 my first first ever races. Um, I was, yes, I actually came, I actually came from four in the two. 
um, until I until I got smart and figure out, oh wait, what? The 100 meter sprinters make all the money? Okay, that's where I'm going. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually signed a letter of intent to the University of Southern California and the, the oh, late wow. great Jim Bush to run the four and the two. I never ended up going to USC. Obviously, I went to UCLA. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I started in the four and the two. And um, once I um, once I went to once I went to World Juniors, and uh, that was so that was ninety. By ninety one, I moved out to California. Third in the third in the state in the two hundred. I four started out of the hundred. Um, one of only two four starts in my whole career. <laughs> one was in high school, one was in college. Yeah. And um, and then I go to World Juniors and I win both. Nobody ever done that before. And people go, hey, you know that that's you know world junior champion that means that you you know it means that you are the next best thing coming but as we know in the sport being the best junior means very little we i could rattle off 10 names of world junior champions or people who have you know high school records or whatever that never made it to the next level and i realize now particularly as a coach why because when you are a junior or younger you go for your gears and everybody disappears and when you get to the pros you get to the next level sometimes it's it's even the next level is college you go for your gears and people either stay right there or they keep pulling away from you if you can't deal with that mentally as a sprinter and continue to kind of work at it knowing that you will get better it, it kills most careers and it's not it's obviously not just a sprint thing but i'm explaining it the way i mm-hmm. experienced it when i mean i was world junior champion 92 93 was bad i went to worlds i think i was out in the first round but then by 94 i make it to the final of the commonwealth games i'm the youngest finalist there and i ended up finishing in in fourth place and then by 95 i'm in the world championships I make the final and I get the bronze medal. And at the time I'm the youngest medalist ever. So I just, I, for me, every year was, well, let's see what this year brings and let's see what that year brings along the way. I'm making history for my country. And and in in terms of 95, um, making history at the world championships, but it wasn't like I stood up in 91 and said, okay, so I'm going to plot this path and the path is going to go to, you know, youngest medalist at worlds and, you know, two medals in Atlanta. Every year, I just tried to get better. And from 1994 until, what is it, 1998, every year I got faster. Before we talk more about that next year, the 96 year, the Olympic year, I kind of want to talk about, like, what was it like for you in 95 being, like, the youngest medalist ever and, like, getting getting that for your country as well. Like, Trinidad, was that Trinidad's first medal, too, at the World Championships? Like, what did that mean to, like, go back home at that time and really just to be to be on that rise as somebody that's so young and being the pride of that country in, in some words at that time? Yeah, Trinidad and Tobago had never won a medal at the World Championships. They'd never... I, I, I was not... I was ticking off a lot of boxes that, quite frankly, because we had gone 20 years without a major... 100 meter and 200 meter sprinter that was going to happen because the world juniors didn't exist back in in the 70s when we had won our last medal so we had won the 1976 gold medal um in montreal at the olympics with hazley crawford 
And then we had a drought, a drought which I was very aware of. Because when I was deciding where I was going to run for, I decided, no, it's it's going to mean so much more to run for Trinidad. Um, and and look at this, look at this big drought. So when I win that medal in '95, yes, it's Trinidad and Tobago's first um, world championship medal. But more importantly, I think for me it was I've ended the I've ended the drought. I've created history and all of that. And let's keep it going. I I, I spent very little time celebrating things that I did. I think it was because I was in a very competitive group. But I think yeah. it was also because you you don't get to when you're actually going through. It's like you think you think Tom Brady this weekend. Is, is thinking about the nine times that he's made it to the uh, to the to the championship game in his conference? No, 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 no. because none of those matter. You can't do anything about it. They can't help you. So the only thing he's focused on is making his tenth on Sunday. So in the same way, I, I you know I didn't go into Atlanta thinking, oh well, you know I got that medal last year. It was like, no, the, it's the Olympics. It's going to be harder. The Worlds was one thing, you know. The Olympics is going to be harder. So I, I never was focused on, you know. Where does this put me in history? Because that's the stuff that you f- you figure out after the race or after your career. You're not worried about that in, in, in the moment. Yeah, and speaking of, like, your career, like, the craziest – the one of the craziest uh, world championships or Olympics, I'm sorry, that you were in was that 96 Olympics, which was your first Olympics, where, you know, in the 200 – you had Michael Johnson break a record, and then in the 100, you had Donovan Bailey. So you had some tough matchups. But what was it like, your first experience going to the Olympics? Well, I'd actually gone in 92 at 18. Oh, I'm sorry. So, but, but that right. second so one. So a month I- before, yes, a month before I win those World Junior titles, um, the meet now is actually called World U20, World Under 20 Championships. Um, I went to the Olympics. When they, I run 1022 uh, that year. So I went in there very overconfident. I was like, hey, 18 years old, 1022, that should make the semifinals. Wasn't training with any kind of real um, aplomb and wasn't really. I, yeah, I, I went in there way too, way too overconfident. And I was out in the first round in both. The good news is I got to see lots of Barcelona. The bad news is I was out. And back home, back home, they were like, oh. Maybe Mr. Hotshot isn't as hot as he thinks. And that pissed me off. And I went and trained like a beast. So when I get to the world championships, which were in Seoul, South Korea, yeah, the reason why I dominated that meet is because I was still running with a chip on my shoulder and being irritated at what had been said about me for having flopped at the Olympics. So when I get to 96 in Atlanta, I've been there before. And I also know how going in there overconfident or thinking this is, you know, you got this is, is the absolute wrong uh, way to approach it. And I think that's why, I mean, I, I couldn't, I, there's nothing I could have done differently in that 200. Nobody was beating Michael that night. Nobody was beating Frankie except Michael that night. I was, I think the second youngest in the race. That was my first major final in the 200. I hadn't run the 295 at Worlds the year before. So for me to get there and get third and run 1980 and break the Caribbean record and all the other stuff that that did, that was um, pretty significant. The 100, I just I, I just messed it up. I, I just messed it up. That's the one race in my career I'd probably want back because 
I got caught up in all the false starting and the drama, and they called me for a false start, which I still think to this day was was bullshit. Um, but the truth is, you can't get caught up in stuff you can't control, and I tell my athletes that all, all the time. What are you lo- What are you wasting energy on something you can't control? Why? What What purpose does that serve? So you had the the veteran guys, uh, Frankie and Donovan. Who kept their calm they were also away from it i was next to linford because i was in three linford was in two um the 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 guys who the guys who beat me to the line kept their composure their focus was the finish line i have a job to do and my thing was this is crazy why are you calling the four start on me why are you not throwing him out why is he not leaving and it was like meanwhile my manager is in the stands and he's like oh god what are you doing just chill out like you're gonna need that energy in another five minutes. So, so that's the first first huge mistake I made. The second other mistake that I made is that Dennis Mitchell is next to me. Dennis Mitchell never beat me in a major championship, not Worlds, not Olympics. But Dennis is a fast starter. Instead of t- at the time we weren't we weren't calling it the drive phase, we were calling it like seven steps. But I knew there was a pattern to my running. It's like you take your time, slowly go from down to up, and then you do your running. When the gun actually goes off of the actual race, Dennis jumps out on me a little bit. And instead of just like, this is, again, this is what you call athletic maturity. Instead of taking my time and going, yeah, Dennis will come back, I decide, nope, go get Dennis. Yeah. And I went and got Dennis. And now I have the lead. 30, 40, 50, 60, 65. Oh, wow. But guess what? Donovan and Frankie have taken their time, and now they have more to get to the finish line with. So I actually hit the finish line second, and then I make my third mistake. I turn to look. Frankie and me, TGS is where I get the bronze. So it's the kind of stuff that I stay on my athletes about because I'm like, I know about making stupid mistakes in the race of your life. Trust me, you don't want to live with that. You don't want to live with, with telling that story like I have to. Get it right. Get it right so you don't so you because when you get the gold medal, you don't have to tell the story. The people who don't get medals or who get the lesser medals have to tell the story like I am. <laughs> I was again yeah, we were just actually watching watching that race and I was thinking when I was watching, I was like, damn, he got you got out. Like you were moving. Yeah. But you have one tank of gas. If you want to burn you guys watch Fast and Furious. What happens when you hit that NOS button too early oh, in a know. race? You're going to wipe out. You're going to burn out. Right. <laughs> exactly. So that's the, that's the fast and furious version of what I do. And then also you were speaking on just how many like great people you're running against in that time and just how you were even able just to celebrate your victories and just kept them moving forward. Could you kind of just, when you look back at that era, like uh, late 90s and the early 2000s that you were competing in, could you, do you feel like there's any difference compared to this, how compared to the athletes right now how they're competing would you see any difference of probably mentality or attitude or even just the sport in general there's only one spot at the top of that podium and i think we were a lot more honest about you know yeah you know i i respect michael johnson or i respect whoever uh, my competitor but i don't have to like him and he sure as hell doesn't like me and that was okay Mm -hmm. Um, I have been, I, I, I heard, uh, I heard Tyson Gay on a, on a, on a Instagram live or something. He was doing an interview with Natasha Hastings and he said, 
what she said, you know, Michael Johnson, Otto Bolden, and somebody else kind of calls out your generation for being too nice, and you guys, like, pretend to like each other. And it's because I know them, and I know the backstories, and I know who doesn't like each other, and then I see them, like, you know, they're a little too cordial. But that, listen, the younger guys are always going to look at the older guys and go, ah, I get that. That's that's life, right? Hmm. But Tyson said something very interesting. He said, well, you know, I'm not, you know, I wasn't going to WWE it up. Because that's not my personality, you know. I, you know, I respect whoever, but you know, when the gun go off, I'm trying to get you. But he ended it by saying, "But you know, we ran faster than them, so you know." <laughs> and I thought to myself, "Yeah, you ran faster than us because you ran whatever it is, 10, 15 years later. But you're running in empty stadiums, and people are bored by the sport because we don't get the matchups anymore. In my generation." Every single week, you could follow it. The top eight guys in the world, with very few exceptions, would line up. You knew who didn't like each other because you saw it in the press and you saw it in the papers. And it wasn't WWE. WWE wasn't manufactured. It was real. Everybody knew. Uh, our camp and Donovan's camp, we did not like each other. We used to call him Donovan Baby. He had names for us or whatever. So, but but listen, why do you, why do you think? Uh, UFC is as big as, Dude, as it Conor is. McGregor on the mic. I mean, crazy. Because we have to go back on, on not liking each other, on hating each other's guts. That's not WWE. Yeah. That's being, that's that's what I call truth, truth and athleticism. I want to kick this guy's ass. There's nothing wrong with that. No, yeah. So anyway, the bottom line is the difference between then and now is one, we all lined up every single week and the stands were packed. And a lot of these guys now, they duck each other and they're worried about their rankings and their contracts and who got paid what and this and that and the other. We didn't worry about that. Every single week we lined up and the stands were full. Now, you get very... I mean, I've been covering this sport for 15, 16 seasons now. I can... Now, outside of Worlds and Olympics, I can probably count on two hands... When we had more than two of the of the really top people on the men's side, not on the women, on the men's side, men's hundred, they don't line up. They don't line up. Yeah. One's here, one's that they they duck each other. Like I said, it's always some story. I know what it is. It's you know I want to get that con- I want to get that contract bonus and I want to get my contract renewed and so and so took all the money and it's like, well, keep at it. Because I look at stadiums that I used to compete in, like Stockholm, where it used to be standing room only. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, wow, that stadium is not a quarter full. So keep it up. And you would think that with that, like, you would think social media would have, like, helped in that type of way. of like exactly. fueling that fire. Like, do you, do you think, I don't, I don't know with, like, the, you're misusing the social media or how is it, like... Because what, what do you think it would have been like if social media was back when in 96 when y'all were running? <laughs> uh, uh, I, I find myself asking that question uh, a lot because, I mean, look, my group had a reality show being shown to tens of millions of people on Eurosport, which is uh, most of Asia, most of the Arab world, and all of Europe um, in 2003. What? Yes, we were ahead of the curve. We had a video game in 2000. Wait, okay? what? <laughs> you Google that. ESPN Track and Field 2000. Maurice Green's on the cover. So wait, a lot wait, of... Wait. Listen, this, the stuff that we were doing back then, 
they're not even doing now. They're not, where, where's the track and field reality show now? Doesn't exist. Not even no, online. No. Yeah. Do you understand? We used to we used to get off of planes in the European cities, and people would be there to meet us because they they knew where we they knew we were in town. It was it was literally it's probably like the the way it would be like being an NBA team. So yeah. I, I guess look, I'm not trying to knock this generation for everything, but I'm trying I'm saying they're doing less with more because mm-hmm. most of them think that their social media is a place to put selfies and how much they lifted yesterday. And it's like, yeah, what else you got? And I challenge my athletes, show people something they're not seeing everywhere else. The stuff that we think is mundane and, you know, oh, any, nobody's going to want to see that. That's the stuff that always gets your highest number of hits. Guarantee you. The people online who really? succeed are the ones who are not doing what everybody else is doing. And I see a whole sport of athletes where it's like, oh, my God, you guys are so boring. Yes, you lifted that. Yes, you did that sit-up. Yes, you ran that time. It's like, what else you got? Yeah. What else? What else would make me pay attention to you other than that? And the reason why our show was so popular is because they got to see us driving our cars and 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 spending way too much money at the at the mall and interacting with our loved ones and they got to see our houses and and it's like I I, I don't know I I feel like the old guy when I get off on one of these rants but I know what it could be. And I see how it is. And I know it could be better. Yeah, and I don't even think you're the old guy for saying that because we all we all know how track is track is struggling right now. And we all we both, me and Joshua, have a passion for the sport. So we talk about these things all the time because right now we we have the the, the stars to make those things happen. Like we have the Sydney McLaughlin, we have like the Noah Lyles who's who's rapping, rapping and stuff. We have the Michael Norman. So we have these people in these matchups, but I don't know what it is about our generation. I always feel like this just in general, like that 90s generation, that, you know, that Michael Jordan generation, it was more like a warrior mentality, like that Kobe warrior, that's a little bit later, but that warrior mentality going into races. Like we we talked to Michael Granville about this too. And I feel like our dad, our dad was a boxer. So like he has that mentality, like I'm going to, I'm going to kill you. Like in this race, and I feel like social media has honestly watered it down a little bit, you know, like, like it's it just has. like the PC culture a little bit and being nice. But it's, it's interesting the three the three names that you called. Look at the three names that you called: Sydney, Noah, and Michael Norman. You know what they all have in common? Their social media they, doesn't look like everybody else's. Michael Norman is doing freaking you know, Toyota commercials, you know, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Sydney's jungle. It's, it's interesting. Noah is dancing or rapping or whatever. And whether it is, whether you like it or you think Noah is a fantastic rapper or a great dancer or whatever, the fans eat that stuff up. It's not a coincidence that those three people that you mentioned are three of the most popular in our sport. And those are the people who as a network, yeah, they're gonna get a lot of airtime because they are the people that have that have sort of risen above their sport and they're kind of I mean, obviously Allison Felix as well, because she's been around and 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 she's been such a phenomenal um ambassador for our sport. 
But yeah, it, it is the ones who find some kind of different way to show themselves that, that get remembered, that get that get highlighted. Yeah, definitely. That's, that was just a great conversation as well. Like, But as you start the transition off the track and start going into commentating, I'm also just curious, was there ever an interest before you like while you're running track or maybe before you're in sports to like, I want to be on TV one day or be in entertainment when you were younger? The two things I knew I didn't want to do is coach and broadcast. <laughs> I was sure that I was sure it was the two places I was not going to go. Um, I started broadcasting because in 99, I'm injured for the only time in my pro career. I miss worlds and I want to stay at home in LA because I knew Maurice was going to kill everybody anyway. And uh, my agent said, nope, you're coming to Seville. And I was like, no, I don't want to go. I want to stay at home and drive my Porsche. And he said, nope, you're getting on that plane. You're coming to Seville. I get to Seville, and because I don't have anything to do, the British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, says, how would you like to come on our air? And I wasn't doing the job I have now, and I think people need to make that distinction. People look at Stephen A or somebody else and they think, oh, yeah, well, they're both on TV. Calling live events is yeah. completely different from sitting in a studio. Yeah. Charles Barkley is great in a studio, but you would not want to hear him call a basketball game. Because no, I hear him when he calls March Madness, he's not as good. I'm not trying to say which is harder. I'm saying it takes a, a, a certain set of skills, to quote Liam Neeson. So I was doing a little bit of uh, studio stuff, right? You know, I expect Maurice Green to, you know, to win this race. He's going to run a, a better turn, and then he just has to hold him off, blah, blah. And the bug kind of bit me then. And um, because I was not American, I but I was always, always with the HSI group at the Olympic trials, the BBC, um, after I did Worlds in 99, they hired me in 2000 to do um, coverage from the US Olympic trials. That's when Maurice and Michael um, pull up in the, in the 200 final. Um, that was, a, you know, that was in Sacramento. So by 99 and 2000, the two entries on my resume for broadcasting say British Broadcasting Corporation correspondent, and that's a good place to start. So yeah, I didn't yeah. think I was going to um, to broadcast, and I certainly didn't think I was going to coach. But the broadcasting happened, um, you know, about five years before I actually retired. Wow! And then to see where it's all just gone now to where you're just you were saying off wax how you're the veteran in your group now, and just be that that Emmy nominated. Can you talk about when you first like got the call? Like, yo, Otto, like <laughs> you, it's, a, it's a big story. Well, the, the backstory to it is that when I got into the industry, I said, okay, so I mean, I'm an athlete, I'm a sprinter. My brain always has to be chasing something. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, so what's the gold medal in this sport? And they said, well, it's, um, it's uh, an, an Emmy. That's, that's the, the award for excellence in broadcasting on American Airways. I said, okay, well, that's what I want. And they were like, no, 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 you don't understand. Track and field broadcasters don't get that. They, it's never happened before. And I went, well, that's that may be a given. That's what does that have to do with my aspirations for doing it? Remember, this is, I'm somebody yeah. who has done a lot of things for the first time. So telling me that does not discourage me. It just makes me go, oh, so I'll be the first at that too. <laughs> When I actually got it, and, and by the way, you can look at the the broadcast. I, I think, to be honest, there's one particular moment. I, I know there's a reel that you have to send into the Emmy. So 
NBC will take the best of my year and they'll cut it together and they'll send it in for submission. That's how you do it for the movies. That's how you do it for television, like for primetime stuff. Same thing for sports. Okay. I have a very good idea of what got me the nomination. I wrote a little bit of a, just a little paragraph that was going to lead us into the 200 meter final in London, 2012. And I wrote something to the effect of when we spoke to Usain, he didn't say that he wanted you to watch this race that he's about to run and go, oh yeah, that was great. He said he wanted to run the kind of race that would make you remember where you were when you saw it. And Tom Hammond was gracious enough to just leave it alone and just let them go into the blocks with that. Bolt runs, he wins. He's now won, he's now become the first to win uh, the, the 100 and the 200 in back-to-back Olympic games. And then I say, you know, let all doubt end tonight here in this London Olympic Stadium. Usain Bolt's the greatest sprinter that has ever walked the face of the earth. I think I got it for that. So in 2013, I what's funny about when I find out is I am always on a plane. Well, at least I used to be pre-COVID. I'm always on a plane. But I tend to always be on Wi-Fi on a plane too, even back then. So usually I don't miss much. For some reason, the flight did not have Wi-Fi. This is back when it would kind of, not like now where every flight has Wi-Fi. Back then it was like, if you got the right plane. I was flying to Los Angeles. So I was off, you know, heading west to LA. Sometimes it's five and a half hours. Because you're going against the wind. And I got off the plane, well, landed, and turned on my phone. And it was like, it blew up, literally. It's, it's probably the only thing people say, oh, yeah, my phone's blowing up. That's the only time I've ever had a, flo- a, a phone blowing up on me. And it was everybody from USA Track and Field to like every person who ever knew me and still had my number saying, oh my God, I can't believe that you got an Emmy nomination. Now, obviously I didn't win the Emmy, yeah. but but in this case, it really was just an honor to be nominated. I would love to win one one day. I know the odds are stacked against me. The people who normally win in my category, uh, Chris Collinsworth has like, I think 10 of them now. But he's on TV every week, sometimes twice. So he has a bigger sample size to be able to to send in there. Um, of late, like the baseball, um, uh, the baseball analyst on uh, on on Fox has gotten it. Uh, Tony Romo, who I think is phenomenal. I love. I know everybody does it. I love listening to Tony Romo. And but when he came on, I went, "Damn, my category just got harder." He does good. Everybody who so the Troy Aikmans, the Chris Collinsworth. Um, all of those guys, that's my category for the Emmy. So it's, it, it's a difficult category, but, um, I guess the less than that is don't worry about when people tell you, oh, it hasn't been done before. So what? So you're going to be the first to do it. Yeah. And that's a, that's a breakthrough for track and field to just, just be in there. Um, it just shows like the impact that our sport has, even though we might not yeah. have as many, like for, like for baseball and stuff, there's so many games or whatever, but like. Like we were talking about earlier, the Olympic the Olympics are huge. That that is like a big moment, and you're live. You know, exactly. you got to be all systems go and on it, and to like really like connect with Let people. Me share this story. Let me share this story with you because I laugh at it now, but I was very upset at the time. Um, my producer called me, kind of called me to to the truck because. We're in the booth, but in the Olympics, they're way down in the in the broadcast area where all the trucks are. 
that that send the signal out to the respective countries. And he said that somebody had reached out or called and they thought I was calling these races so accurately. When I say calling them, predicting them, like I'm telling you, okay, yeah, Bolt's got this, you know, Shellyanne's going to win. Allison can't be beat this year, whoever it was. I was being so accurate. I, I was, I really feel like 2012 was my best Olympics. I, I was just, I was dialed in. I was well-prepared. I knew it was coming. I was accurate. I don't think I missed, um, I don't think I, I missed any predictions. Although my job is not really predicting. My job is to tell you, I think this is going to happen and why. And if I'm wrong, that's fine too. Yeah. Right. It's like Tony. It's like Tony Romo at the end of that uh, at the end of that AFC game last week, where he says, "Oh, there's no way they're gonna snap the ball," but they snapped yeah. it. But it's okay because 99% of the time they don't. Um, somebody was basically saying NBC thinks they're slick. They're recording. They're recording Bolden's voice on these things after the fact. In other words, the race happens, and then they make me call the race off a of tape. And I went. Like I was so upset, and my producer was like, "What are you upset about?" That's like the ultimate compliment. He literally <laughs> thinks you're deceiving him because there's no way that you're gonna be right all the time. And I, I was so mad. And I look back now, nine years, nine years after, and I go, "Yeah, that, that, that was." I, I think my, I think my, uh, my ethics were insulted. Like, really? Like, you think NBC would do that for me or for anybody? It's not something we do. We don't. First of all, we don't have the capability of doing that when we're live for the other things. But yeah, as you, as you said that, that reminded me of that. That's funny. <laughs> You're just nice at your job. You just, you, I mean, you've been running track for a minute. So yeah, you an analyst. <laughs> I'm not right all the time. <laughs> I just try to be right most of the time. I'm certainly not right all the time. I have, I have missed, put this way. When Usain Bolt breaks the world record in the 200, I thought, I, I was like, look, he's going to win this race by a mile. I go into the race thinking, there's no way he's going to break the world record again because nobody's going to be next to him. And he comes off the turn and just, oh, 1919. Oh, got that wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. <laughs> that was crazy, too. That was crazy, that too. Was but then you made that transition to broadcasting, still in that. And then you also start coaching as well, but not even just track athletes. You coach like uh, football players getting ready for the NFL as well, like their 40 yard dash going to record combine. How did that all come about just as you started? You, you talked about it a little bit earlier, but feeling that need to chase a little bit more into coaching. How did that come about and how does that start to fulfill you as you get more into coaching? Well, as I said, I, I, I never thought I was going to coach. <laughs> I didn't want to coach. I don't think I have the patience for it still, probably don't. But um, a young lady by the name of Khalifa St. Fort, her father came and essentially said, look, I have this, this daughter. She hates her her high school coach <laughs> she hates her high school program will you take a look at her and when she came and she ran for me a little bit i thought you know like one evening i said like she's being ignored at her high school i was like oh we can't have that and then he said oh yeah my wife's from trinidad and immediately i went oh shoot <laughs> for trinidad here's a way to contribute back to trinidad and tobago mm. without you know and and i don't even have to leave home so from there, she, you know, she ends up, um, she ends up, what, World Youth, she got second behind Candace Hill in 15. Her senior year, she, oh, she's the only U.S. high schooler that has a world championship medal because the Trinidad and Tobago relay team, which I coached in 2015 at Worlds, Senior Worlds, got bronze. She ran the round. So she has a bronze medal from the world championships as a junior in high school. Her wow. senior year, she makes the Olympic team, um, but only for the relay. She got fourth. 
Um, and they get fifth in the final. So she's been in the Olympic final and in the uh, and in the World Championships where she has a bronze medal. Um, she's since left me. She's coached now by Lance Brahman in Orlando. But that was me getting started. Um, very soon after that, um, Brianna Williams, who I still coach, her mother says, who I actually, I knew them before. She said, oh, I thought you weren't going to coach. Well, you're coaching Khalifa now. Coach my daughter. So people look at Brianna and they go, she looks like a pro. And I'm like, yeah, because she's been learning to drive face since she was nine. Yeah. <laughs> so I never thought I was going to coach. Um, but I've been, I've been, and those are not my only two athletes. I have athletes who are um, from Puerto Rico, from the uh, British Virgin Islands. Some of them ran to college and got scholarships and now they're, you know, they're, they're living their lives. Um, one of them is still at Alabama, uh, Gabriel Serrano. Um, he actually uh, anchors their four by four now, but um, I, I really enjoy coaching. I never thought I would, but I do immensely. And in terms of the NFL stuff, well, I never played in the NFL. Um, now I realize that's probably a good thing because of what we know about CTE and all that stuff. I just think it's, it's scary, but um, I work with a company called Test Football, and they have put hundreds of people into the into the NFL. I think right now we have like seventy guys playing in the NFL. So, um, including um, I always I'm always partial to the guys who have my name. So like I I, I coach this guy Brandon Bolden who's still a, a running back for New England. So when he would score, they'd go touchdown Bolden. I'm like that's the only time I'm going to hear that. So. <laughs> But no, I never thought I'd coach, but it, it's very rewarding and it's nice to be every Sunday. I, I mean, Donnell Savage is, is, is my last, um, is the last person I can, I can think of that, that made it uh, into the league. And I'll watch him play um, when Green Bay plays Tampa Bay on Sunday. So every Sunday I turn on the TV and I see somebody who I've worked with in the past. Yeah, that that's really awesome. But then I also want to I, I want to ask you this question because since you uh, do coach Brianna Williams, and then recently seeing the signing of Arion Knighton, sixteen years old, signed to a to Adidas, like you and yourself being so so great at that young age too, then Brianna um, being so young, signing a con contract at high school, just like what do you think is like the key to these athletes that go uh, pro so young to be able to just stay the course as they go on and really just the key to being a successful pro athlete going pro that young um the statistics say that it usually does not work and when i say that people go but wait khalifa st fort turned pro out of high school and brianna williams turned pro out of high school correct uh khalifa had signed a national letter of intent to go to ucla and then decided she didn't want to go. And it was kind of, okay, well, if you're sure you're not going to go, then we have to figure out what the alternative is. And and, and she ended up uh, turning pro. Brianna was a little different because Brianna had a lot of people running her down. And quite frankly, there was so much being thrown at Brianna, she'd have been crazy to not take it. And now in retrospect with coronavirus and all of that stuff, it's like, trust me, not a day goes by that Brianna and the rest of her team, myself included, don't go, oh my gosh, thank God we yeah. took that deal when we did. Because I think there's a lot of people who maybe said, well, I'm going to go to college for a year or two years. And that now it's like that industry has changed. And there are Olympic champions and world champions with no contract right now. Their contract expired last December 31st. 
and that's it. And the industry has completely changed. There's basketball players that don't have contracts. That's just the industry just contracted. So um, to answer your question, though, I think it's almost always a better idea to go to university. Mm. If you live in the States, because I see a lot of the people who hop in the comments, like, you know, when, when the young man that, that turned pro recently, they're like, oh, no, you got to go to college because you got to get this and any other. And I, I stopped myself from saying, yeah. So if that's the case, how come uh, all of the American stars that you can remember left early? Name the American star. Sonia left early. Gatlin left early. Coleman left early. Norman left early. So I think there is I think there is value in going, but I think that this whole thing of, yeah, you know, you're missing out on the college experience. I can tell you as somebody who had the collegiate record, I never lost a, a, a race in college. That's bullshit. The college experience is absolute bullshit. It's being broke for four years. And in some programs, they run your ass into the ground. And you come out after I I know I know countless people. You come out after four years. And you're a shadow of your former self. And now you're not any good as a pro either. So I think there is a, de a delicate balance. And obviously, there are the exceptions. Um, Ajay Wilson comes to mind. Uh, Noah Lyles, Allison Felix. There, you know, there, there are others that I'm forgetting. I mean, Mondo and, and Sydney, for the most part, they went there for, what, 12 months? They went Mondo yeah. to LSU and, and, and Kentucky. Their careers wouldn't be any different had they had they gone straight out of uh, out of high school. But... I think that there is there are a lot of kids getting a lot of bad advice. There, you know, but but everybody's everybody's situation is different. If you're in a in a household, especially now, you're in a household where it's been devastated and your parents aren't working because of coronavirus, and some shoe company comes and offers you 30, 40, 50 grand a year and guarantees it for five, six years. Maybe you gotta take it. So I, I see people knocking decisions, and they're like, "Well, you know, it's like shut up with your sixty-year-old self." Like, what would you, what would you know? What would you? I know of athletes that have been offered high six and seven figures to come out. The purpose of going to university is to get a job. Yep, exactly. Come out, take the money, get your degree. Allison Felix is the prototypical example of get your money get your degree life going on this this anybody in a comment section or anybody you see them well it's the worst thing in the world blah, blah blah the truth is you can go to college and come out and not be any good either i can pick five major programs where none of the sprinters male or female have come out and done anything on the world stage so if the big fix for if the big recipe for being on that podium is to go to university then how come we don't see all these NCAA sprint stars killing everybody in the uh, on, on, on the world scene, particularly in the 100 and the 200? The 400 is a little better in terms of stats, but 100 and 200, nope. Yeah, and I, I, I definitely 100% agree with you. Like, the purpose of going to school is to get a job. So, like, if you're ready, like, I don't know, I, I guess in school it would be like if you were going – to to law school and your first semester in somebody was like hey you're ready right now go take the bar and go get the go get this money you would you would dip and like the college experience you can always go back like allison did but even with these newer ones like sydney and mondo like 
they are top in the world, breaking world records, and and they're making a ton of money. Exactly, they're must see. They're must see TV. But yeah. do you think that they're, if there is a way to find out, you know, if you're ready or not, is there something that you see in an athlete um, besides the money that's like, okay, they're ready to take that next step and be a professional? You know what I look for to be quite honest. It's not. It's not foolproof. But I think when I look at the the world under 20 champions of the past, like Veronica Campbell Brown and um, the Allison Felixes and so on, the ones who were able to make it throw out their personal best, maybe even throw out their top two times. I see people turning pro based on a good weekend. Mm. I see people turning pro based on one good race or one good year. And it's like, mm, okay, because the truth is, I look for the body of work. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, 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 I'll, and, I'll make the, and I'll make the example with my own athlete. Brianna Williams' personal best is 1094. Throw that out. You know what her next best time is? 1101 shutting down. You know what her next best time is? 1102. You know what her next best time is? 1110. So it's, it's like the body of work is there where you can see. This is not somebody who they got lucky in some windy race at altitude one weekend. This is somebody who, who is the, the average of their top 10 times is probably 11, 10 or 11, 11. That's a big difference to somebody who hits one time and decides, Oh, I hit that time. I ran that, you know, nine, nine windy on some downhill track somewhere in the Midwest. And that's it. Cause nine, nine will get a medal in the Olympics. And it's like, you are in for one rude awakening. So for me, I tend to look at what is the body of work? What is their fourth, fifth, sixth best time? How is there, if it's a, if it's a sprinter, what does your 200 look like? What does your series of, of 200 meter um, personal best progressions look like? Because um, other than that, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, and, and look at the recent past. Ajay Wilson, throw out her PR from, from high school. She still was running blazing times consistently. Yeah. No yeah. lie, same thing. Mondo, same thing. Sydney, same thing. There's a difference between that and maybe the, the kid who, you know, one time or, or, or maybe one weekend. And, and, and that to me, if I was a betting person, I'm always going to bet on the person with the body of work. Yeah, and one of those athletes that you just mentioned with the, that great body of work is Mondo Duplantis. And I really just want to talk about him for one second. You got to introduce... Uh, his World Athlete of the Year award just a couple months yeah. ago and everything. But how do you, I've been talking to Aaron about this and I was talking to Aaron last year, like, bro, if there's the Olympics in 2020, I really thought Milo Duplantis could have been like the real star of the show. Cause I didn't know that he was gonna be, become the best pole vaulter of all time and like 16 straight wins and everything. But I really thought like he was gonna kill it. And he just has, I feel like he has the face and the moxie and definitely what he, the stuff that he does with Red Bull that was going to get him like over the top and be like one of like the headlines to it. But do you just feel like, do you, how do you feel like Mondo's going to be able to change the sport of pole vault and really make it must see TV? Cause I feel like he's even uplifting the sport too, where people are vaulting higher and higher consistent, consist, uh, consistently as well. Um, you guys are a little young, so you wouldn't remember the beginning of the nineties when a guy called Sergey Buka was arguably the face of the sport. It was, it was kind of him, Michael and uh, Michael Johnson and, and Carl Lewis. 
The pole vault, because of how spectacular it is, and quite frankly, because of how competitive it is, because remember, Mondo is all world and the world record holder and all of that stuff now. But you know what he's not? He's not world champion. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's Sam Kendrick. So Mondo still has, he's not Olympic champion. I mean, in fairness to me, he hasn't been to the Olympics yet. But my point is, well, wait, you know, he wasn't real. He was, he was young. He yeah. was young. He was in high school, you know, still or whatever, and, and, and didn't, you know, didn't do that well. But the point is, the pole vault is competitive enough, and that kid is enough of a star. And I think for us at NBC, he has enough of a USA tie where we're going to devote some time to him. Um, yeah. I was, I, because I was in... Uh, I was in his hometown. I got a chance to kind of, you know, meet the families from a fantastic family, great uh, athletic siblings, and his mom and dad obviously are are, are are great athletes, were in their own right. But in his own hometown, people were like, what? He's not representing the red, white, and blue? Ah, I don't want to support him. It's like, wow, this kid is born and raised. Yeah. In, in in Lafayette, Louisiana, and it's like now you guys are like, oh, we don't know because he's gonna go run for you know the country of his mother's birth, and of course I deal with that a little bit because I remember when Brianna said I'm gonna go run for the country of my mother's birth, and I had friends who I had to cut off because they were like, oh wow, really? She's born and raised here, and now she's gonna go run for somewhere else. And I went, really? What if you had applied that logic to the U.S. team? Yeah. Goodbye, Sonia. Goodbye, Karan Clement. Goodbye, Bernard. I mean, there's a there's yeah. just a ton of Abdi Abdi Rahman. I mean, the list goes on and on yeah. and on and on. So it's a very personal decision. What is is he ducking the U.S. pole vaulters? He couldn't make the U.S. team. He no. decided what was best for him. Yeah. Or again, it's his choice. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go honor my mother by competing for the country that she was born in. That's not our business. The bottom line is, I think Mondo can be a huge star um, in this Olympics. I think he's going to compete with Noah and Delilah and Sydney and Michael Norman in terms of the track and field consciousness. I think they get those. I mean, Delilah's already Olympic and world champion, but Norman, Mondo, Lyles can be the people who, you know, the, the athletes who people go, oh my gosh, because, you know, Americans. For the most part, they only pay attention to track and field every four years. So yeah. you, both of you and I, know all these people well. Because we're like, oh my gosh, they've been great since high school. Yeah. So the American public, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, this kid, he's from Louisiana, but he's, well, he's representing Sweden, and Michael Norman, his mother's from Japan, and now he's back there. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a real chance for, um, for a, an American audience to really sort of fall in love with the new... Um, with the new track and field stars in the way that whoo, 17 years ago, 17 years ago, American audiences for the first time fell in love with Alison Felix because her first Olympics was Athens in 04. That was my last Olympics. But yeah, it's, it's time for the new blood to sort of ascend to the throne. Yeah, and speaking of new blood, well, I had to touch on this, um, this matchup in the 400 hurdles on the men's and the women's side. It's crazy right now. Like every every race, there can be a world record, but specifically with Sydney and Delia Muhammad, like how do you think that is going to be? Just seeing that matchup, I feel like that can really like bring a lot of attention at the Olympics, and it's awesome that it's in the four hurdles where in the U.S. You know, we Corey Carter, Ashley Spencer, Delia, Sydney. We could go on and on. The list Shamir is long. Little. With 
Shamir Little. The list is long with stars in the four hurdles. But then even on the men's side with Rye and, and Carson Warholm battling it out too, it's going to be one of the highlight events. But how do you think that can just bring attention to the U.S.? Well, um, the United States for years would be sort of good in the sprints, but then the distances not so much. And then we've seen in the last couple of years, you know, in Rio, the U.S. wins the 1500 um, on the men's side, um, the U.S. medals in, in some of the other distances. The U.S. is as balanced a team as, as it's been, certainly since I've been broadcasting in the last 15, 16 years. So sure. think about what the 100 could look like. The 100 could have a U.S. winner, certainly. Yeah. Um, the 200, Noah Laz would be a big favorite. The 400, yes, there's there's Gardner from the Bahamas, but Mike Norman at full strength, a lot of people feel like, you know, he certainly has a chance. Um, the U.S. is always going to be one of the favorites in the relays. And then they also have, the, the distances are doing fine. And then the hurdles too. Remember, when Delilah wins the gold medal in Rio, she's the first American woman to win that event. Yeah, that had never happened wow. before. And now they're, I mean... Are you gonna bet? Are you gonna bet your uh, your bank account that Sydney and Delilah, no matter what order they finish, are not gonna be one two? I'm not, because those no. two. I mean, there's a big gap between them and third at the World Championship. So, yeah, the hurdles might be the best event. And and listen, Rye Benjamin, anybody you talk to, anybody I talk to that knows that event says, look, Karsten Warholm is special. There's no doubt about it. He has the heart. He has the mindset. And quite frankly, he has an easier path. He doesn't have to go through the U.S. trials and all that stuff. He just steps onto the track in Tokyo, and he's good to go. And quite frankly, he's the one with the with the two world championships. He's the one with the target, and he does not make mistakes. But if Rye Benjamin lives up to his potential, I have no doubt in my mind that we are looking at 46 mid or low. I think the last somebody I'm trying to think of who it was somebody who I re respect said I asked them What can Rye run if he runs like close to the purpose perfect race and they said 46 3 and I was like, oh Jeez. <laughs> Jeez. But remember, This is somebody that has tools that nobody else in this event has ever had yeah. He is sub 20 in the 200. Did he run sub 10 yeah. in Texas last year? This is that's not what you usually have in a in a 400 meter hurdler, and he, he'll give you a 43 split on a relay. He's a 44 mid quarter miler. This guy is special. So yeah, the four, the the 400 hurdles, men and women, might end up being the most exciting event at the whole damn Olympics. And as we start closing out, I gotta talk about uh, that other guy that was running with Ryan Benjamin when he ran that sub 10 in Texas and the guy, Michael Norman, Aaron likes to call him Tiger Blood, uh, i.e. stand up, <laughs> Mr. Marietta. Hey, just down the street, just down the street. But Michael Norman, that nine, 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 eight, nine, eight, six, uh, this nine, past eight, eight. year, uh, Aaron, Aaron wanted to ask you like, can, can Michael Norman run that move down to the 100, like right now and be like a real competitive threat if he like keeps this going? Could we like what are, what are just your thoughts on that performance? Um, I think because it was a low key meet and because people weren't there and we were all locked in our houses, I heard the people saying, "Oh yeah, right, nine eight six. It was a Texas track, blah 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 blah." If you understand, look, you saw Michael Norman run nineteen seventy. 
<laughs> the number of people that have run 1970 without at least running 198, I think it's only Michael Johnston. Mm. So think about that for a second. Yeah. Right? Michael Johnston is literally the only person that has run as fast as 1970. Maybe Wallace Freeman as well. But it's not too many people that have Jeez. run that fast at two yeah. and didn't and weren't able to run a sub 99. The bottom line is, I think not only will Michael Norman run the 100, I think that that's where his heart lies. I think you'll see him attempt the gold medal run in Tokyo. He's certainly going to do it in Eugene in front of all his his, his Nike folks and 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 his Pac-12 uh, fans in uh, at the World Championships in 22. Mm-hmm. And then I would not be surprised to see Michael Norman say, "Okay, I have I have the medals in the four. Now I'm going to go do something that nobody's done before, and that is to have Olympic medals in One, the four." The two. Ooh. And yo, that Tiger, would be crazy. Tiger hey, y'all heard bro. it here first. Breaking breaking news on your podcast. <laughs> I think that's what he's gonna do because I know how he thinks. Mm-hmm. Um and I know that he looks at the hundred and he goes, Okay, even you know, Christian Coleman comes back. Christian Coleman's at nine seven. Nine seven what? Nine seven eight, I think now. That's that's fast. But I ran nine eight six. And I don't run the hundred. Mm-hmm. For real, I yes. one tenth. I'm in nine seventy six. Who beats nine seventy six in the Olympics with both gone? Maybe. maybe Christian. Maybe Christian is still Christian is still the man to beat until we see differently. But I think Michael's. I think Michael is going to make that move, and sooner than you think. I'm excited to see that because yeah, he was running the one in high school. Yeah, he was I've, seen him, I've seen him run the 100 when when he was back running the four. Seen him run the 100 at IE Championships, and like he was running low tens there. And I remember just yeah. my dad even saying like he may be a hundred runner, but he's kept on running the four, kept on running the four. I think it is it due time, due time. It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be fun watching him run. To be honest, it's gonna be real fun. He's gonna have one of the best finishes in the one. He's not gonna. He's gonna be so strong. How is he gonna decelerate? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to see that, bro. I'm excited for sure. Then, as we start closing out, just ask like some quick questions uh, to really get to talk talk about the state of track and field. Like, what was your favorite performance? If you can narrow down to just one favorite performance from 2020 this past year, there are so many world records breaking, national records. Like, what was what was your favorite? Um, I'm a, I'm biased to the sprints. I make no no uh, no apologies for that. That's okay. Um, Karsten Warholm on the track, Mondo in the field. Um. But also in the field, Yulemar Rojas of Venezuela, um, and breaking that indoor uh, triple jump world record. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, she won the uh, the world athlete of the year. Um, being from Trinidad and Tobago, we are right next door to Venezuela. That's literally the closest country to us. And I know a lot of Americans don't pay attention to, to stuff that's outside of America. But what's going on in Venezuela? They need some good news, mm-hmm. and I know how uplifting her. 2020 was for a lot of people in in venezuela so those are my those are my three um those are my three favorite performances of 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 last year and uh and one question i have to kind of switching gears this is more of a little little funny uh dinner uh dinner table question we have i don't know if you (laughs) if you've known uh shiel johnson uh chad johnson's daughter Oh, strange, right? Okay, yeah, we were having a... because she was at St. Thomas Aquinas High School, so we went out. To, we had a late practice the other day, and they were actually out there. Um, I have known, I know Chad. I mean, I, I've lived in in South Florida for 
ooh, 13 years now, 12 years. Um, so I know Chad. Um, and I, but I've also seen his daughter come up from age group track and field to where she is now. She is so incredibly gifted. I could see her being like a Sydney, like an Allison, particularly if she's handled properly in the next mm. three or four years. Um, <laughs> I don't, she, he can't beat her. <laughs> you don't think he can beat her? Yes. In a hundred, yes. People forget how far that damn 400 is. And he would, I don't know, he would like put down his cigar and he would think, and right about 250, that reality would hit his ass. And I guarantee yeah, booty lock, booty lock his, would hit yes. <laughs> yes. He would start to he would start to rig so badly. No, my, my I saw Shiel train recently and I just looked at her and I just went, wow. Like you can see her gifts just like coming to the surface. And uh-huh. she's eight and four. So she has strength like nobody's business. She would she would mop the floor with her father. He would never say that because you know he's Chad <laughs> Johnson. Yo, and I know the event. No, that's that's my money's my money's on Shia. Dang, like, we gonna have to we gonna have to see this. I mean, I you would know you, best. Man. You would know best. <laughs> <laughs> Another conversation that football players always getting faster than they are. Let's not let's not hold different podcast. And then we another. This is another conversation that sparked from uh, when we were having that debate uh, last year. Was like, how many NFL wide receivers do you think can break fifty seconds in the four hundred? Because Aaron thinking that these dudes, these I, I understand the NFL athletes like okay. they're they're otherworldly. They're they're great athletes. They're fast speed. We see. They're running 24 second, 24 miles per hour on the field, on the turf, <laughs> for some reason. Oh but but do you think they can break, how many NFL wide receivers do you think can break 50 in the 400? That's the question. You cut them on one hand. On one hand? Oh, what about corners? Hand. Corners and corners. Now, are if you say break 11 in the 100 or something, that number obviously goes higher. You said the 400. Have you seen the body of an NFL wide receiver? That is a lot of weight to carry for 400 meters. It is. It's so, hard. No, one hand. One hand. Aaron, is DK breaking? One hand. Hey, football Aaron, you players. you think DK's breaking 50? You think DK Metcalf is breaking 50 in the 400, Aaron? He might. He might. What? <laughs> DK Metcalf is 235 pounds. Okay, well, I'm talking about I'm talking about okay, more so DBs. They can do you think they can run a 50 point? You said wide receivers. Now you're changing. You're changing from defense. You're changing from offense to defense, and now you're going to DBs. I'm talking corners. Okay, corners. What in the 400? Yeah, you know the 50 point. They can't. can't Now we're from one hand to two hands now. Hey, football players, y'all need to get in shape. Come on. Do you understand how hard it is to run under 50 seconds in a 400? I know it's tough, but... In an NFL body? body? In an NFL body, it's a, it depends on the weight. I guess I would say if you like if you like 230, of course. DK Metcalf is... Weight is not the only factor. You got to be able to hold your speed for 100 and whatever it is, 50 steps. That, that's... It's not nothing. What is you know the what, average? You, know, you ever seen, you ever seen a, a young kid... Get to the track, and they go. Oh, I'm on the track. That's how it would be for most NFL players. It's like they take off in the first hundred, and you're like, "Oh my god, look at that child!" Oh. That first two hundred. They get to about fifty meters down the backstretch, and you go to. Ah. 
That listen. And that booty lock, not that booty lock that is real. Oval, that oval takes no prisoners. You guys know that. You guys throwing out that number like, oh yeah, fifty seconds in the quarter. That's not nothing. That's it's very very difficult to do. Thank you. You settled a lot of uh, dinner conversations for the next couple of years for sure. I appreciate that. And then as we, as we come closing out the show, we always ask this question every single guest. Who should we have next on the podcast? Because sometimes we, 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 I don't know who to get. I don't know who to get. But who do you think would be a great guest? And we've definitely been looking to have uh, more sprinters on, on the podcast and on the show. Who do you think would be a great person to have on? No one else. Oh, yes. I think he has I mean, so many facets to his personality and to his life. He's into art, the dancing, the, the, the music side. Um, look, NBC put out their, uh, NBC put out its, uh, whatever it is, is it six months to go uh, graphic today? There's only one track and field athlete on that graphic, and it's Noah Lyles. That says that my bosses have identified him as the person that we can put our money on. Why? Because with Christian dealing with his with his situation with whereabouts right now, we have decided, but they have decided, that that's the that's the American sprinter that you can bank on. Mm-hmm. So I think you guys having him on will uh, will give a chance for your audience to learn stuff about him that's not 200 meters and 100 meters in track and field. It'll give it'll give you guys a chance to explore all the stuff he's into from anime and all the other stuff i talked about so that that'd be my vote you know uh, we need you on here bro i want that i want that rap battle when i see you and then our last question it's all it's kind of deep it's kind of deep our last question but i think it's a great question to really end off on just what mar- what do you want to re- be remembered by in the sport of track and field like i think uh you definitely your legacy is has been written and it's still writing to this day. But what do you want people to look back and really remember Otto Bolden as? Uh, I think if I if I checked out of here tomorrow, I would want people to say that he had an immense passion for his sport and for making it better, for having it better presented, more respected, more widely viewed. And um, his real passion came out in the athletes that he coached who were able to do things that, um, you know, some of which have not been done before. So for me, that's how I want to be remembered. I want to be remembered as the guy who, un, unashamed in, uh, and, and, and unabashed in his love um, and his passion for what I think is the greatest sport on earth. And I really do think that you're on that way. And I think Aaron agrees more. And I hope our audience agrees too. It's just, I, I'm... I'm so happy that we got the chance to at least meet you through Zoom. And we're gonna be definitely keep on watching and listening you listening to you as your career goes on. And it's really just gonna be it's gonna be exciting. And I'm just I'm so glad this podcast like this is this is kind of crazy. Like I said in the beginning, Aaron, this is wild. This is really wild. Yeah. We're really on a podcast with Otto Bolden. And Aaron, you got anything else to say before we sign off, bro? As always, to everyone listening, we really appreciate it. if you listen this far into the podcast, you are a true homie. Thank you, Otto, for coming on. It's it's been an honor, and I think this one was one of the best podcasts we have, and people are gonna enjoy it. So, to everyone listening, again, as always, just thank you for tuning in again. Well, thank you guys. You guys did your homework, which makes my job easy. 
<laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, you guys are watching Two Black Runners podcast. See you guys next week on another Two Black Tuesday. Let's get it.